Good afternoon and welcome to Voice of the People Radio by and for the 99% for April 17th, 2021. And you are listening to Leonard Cohen singing Democracy, which fits everything you're going to hear for the next two hours if we do our job. You're, um, you're listening to KFGM 105.5 FM. Missoula Community Radio, streaming on 1055kfgm.org, and now on podcast on anchor.fm or searchable on Spotify, 
and other podcast apps under Voice of the People, Radio Buy and For the 99%. I'm Jim Standin, longtime Standin Sound Man, <laughs> and I'm joined by Linda Gillison and Mark Anderlet. So, what do you guys have hey. to say for each other? Hey there. Hey there. <laughs> That's quite an introduction. That's right. And later on in the show, we have an interview with some of the Missoula Airport ground crew workers who walked off the job this week over their abysmal pay. Now, we have a report from Jeff Smith on how the Montana legislature is proposing to guarantee the financial well-being of Northwestern Energy on its ratepayers' backs. We look forward to that. And we broadcast from the historic Union Hall in the Missoula Valley of Montana, the ancestral home of the Salish people. But in this case, it's only true for 33% of us. Um, we are recording the show from the comfort of our own homes, which are located in some cases in the ancestral homeland, homeland of the Salish people. Um, I'm in on the Alabama-Tennessee border and broadcasting from the ancestral homeland of the Cherokee and Choctaw people. And I'm in the North Carolina Piedmont and broadcasting from the ancestral homelands of the Lumbee and the Cherokee. Mm. And we hope you are holding up and doing your part by staying at home as best you can, by wearing masks when you do go out into public, by frequent washing of your hands and by getting immunized. This show is pre-recorded as our part in halting the pandemic. We hope you enjoy the show as we enjoyed learning how to put this together without going into the studio in the historic Union Hall. And we want to give old Mick a shout out as he is at home too. And we hope friend of the show, Catherine Kanayahu gets better soon too. Mm. Hey Catherine, yes. hey Mick. Yes, shout out to Mick and Catherine. Hope you do. Absolutely. are doing well and we have a word of the week it's a single word so it's really <laughs> special solidarity and this is the core idea behind the labor movement yeah that's right jim it's often used by workers to pull together to struggle with a powerful employer for example and it is a central idea in the in the expression an injury to one is an injury to all. It is a valuable and sturdy word. Uh, so, Mark, let's dive in a bit on the word solidarity. Radio Jim. Um, according to our collective wisdom at Wikipedia, solidarity is an awareness of shared interests, objectives, standards, and sympathies, creating a psychological sense of unity of groups or classes. It ref more simply, though, it refers to the ties in a society that bind people together as one. So solidarity is also expressed when we pull together as Americans, such as happened after 9-11. Yep, that's a good example. And even more, the mutual aid that sprang up with the pandemic, the struggle to avoid climate catastrophe, the various movements for social justice, even the protection within our families are all founded on the rock of solidarity. Solidarity is a fundamental part of humanity without which we would not have families, communities, nations, religions, unions, 
and other organizations. And it is the foundation of Christianity. Um, and most of its adherents, which teaches us that we are all our brothers and sisters keepers. Jesus taught that what you do for the least of us, you do to me. Yeah, and that's, and that's a, 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 an excellent expression of solidarity. Um, again, from Wikipedia, it is, also it is also a significant concept in Catholic social teaching. Therefore, it is a core, core concept in Christian democratic political ideology, which I didn't realize Wonderful there was such. Wonderful point to make, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> and according to Pope Francis, who probably as well as any pope in, in a mere 2,000 years, has said, no one can remain insensitive to the inequalities that persist in the world. The Brazilian people, particularly the humblest among you, can offer the world a valuable lesson in solidarity, a word that is too often forgotten or silenced because it is uncomfortable. I would like to make an appeal to those in possession of greater resources, to public authorities and to all people of goodwill who are working for social justice, never tire of work for a more just world marked by greater solidarity. Then yeah. And died saying that like uh, Oscar Romero. That's, that's absolutely <laughs> a, a true. And, of Jesuits in Central America. Mm -hmm. Yep. You're right. I think um, that all the other world's religions, Linda, maybe uh, have some kind of expression like that too. Um, I mean, Pope Francis, you know, can be very uh, uh, eloquent when he, when he speaks, very eloquent speaker, but it, it, this is a tradition in all the major religions, I believe, mm -hmm. isn't it? Mm -hmm. okay. Absolutely. <laughs> um, Indeed. So the idea of solidarity also is used in the environmental movement as well, yet again by Pope Francis. Yeah. Well, yes, it is, Jim. Um, again, from Wikipedia, the term solidarity is generally employed in sociology and other social sciences, as well as uh, philosophy and bioethics, end quote. The idea that all people and all of nature is interconnected is also a lesson taught by the ecological sciences. Back in 1927, Fritz Jarre places the bioethical idea of solidarity this way, respect every living thing in general as an end in itself and treat it if possible as such. Ecological sciences is fundamentally about the interconnectedness of all life and the environment. It reflects the reality that we are so interconnected that we cannot be whole unless everyone and the planet is whole. And that's a recurring theme among our indigenous population in this <laughs> continent. And we should listen to them more often. Yes, absolutely. Um, that's a, that's a great point. Um, it is not very, it's not a very difficult leap from the ecological sciences to the demand for bioethical solidarity that Fritz Jarre wrote about almost 100 years ago, though it does bring up some of the problems of solidarity in practice, such as when one expression of solidarity is in conflict with another expression of solidarity. For example, when the solidarity of the family 
is torn apart for the interests of a national solidarity as it is as is when the Central American migrant families are being destroyed at the US border with Mexico. Another example of conflicting solidarities is that of work being done by organized labor at the expense of bioethical and social justice solidarity as is the case of union workers and the Keystone XL pipeline or the coal strip plant. These warring solidarities can generate terrible conflicts. Wars are perhaps the supreme example when the passions of national solidarity drive otherwise peaceful people into supporting war against another nation practicing solidarity. Boy, you said uh, you, you've made a, an outstanding statement about uh, how to explain the history of the world, if not the greater universe. Um, it seems, it's the, seems the answer the is touchstone. the answer is 42. Anyway, 42. <laughs> so, well, and perhaps what we should be learning as the human species is to extend solidarity in the broadest way possible. Instead of simply accepting the logic of solidarity for just my nation, for instance, there is a solidarity of internationalism that recognizes and accepts the unique and strong qualities of my nation, but it also recognizes and accepts the unique and strong qualities of other nations too. Yeah, there are many examples of broader ideas of solidarity that are advocated for in order to overcome our terrible problems. Indeed, Jim. Uh, one example given in the Wikipedia article is the connection between the biological and the social solidarities. The broader mix of solidarities was of principal importance for the anarchist ideologist and former prince Peter Kropotkin, who lived from 1842 to 1921. In his most famous book, Mutual Aid, A Factor of Evolution, written in 1902, uh, and written partly in response to social Darwinism, uh, which is the survival of the fittest, <laughs> uh, Kropotkin studied the use of cooperation as a survival mechanism in human societies at their various stages, as well as with animals. According to him, mutual aid or cooperation within a species has been an important factor in the evolution of social institutions. Solidarity is essential for mutual aid. Supportive activity toward other people does not result from the expectation of reward, but rather from the instinctive feelings of solidarity. In his introduction to the book, Karpotkin wrote, the number and importance of mutual aid institutions, which were developed by the creative genius of the savage and half-savage masses uh, during the <laughs> earliest clan period of mankind, and still more during the next village community period, and the immense influence which these early institutions have exercised upon the subsequent development of mankind down to the present times induced me to extend my researches to the latter historical periods as well, especially to study that most interesting period, the free medieval city republics, whose universality and influence upon our modern civilization have not yet been duly appreciated. And finally, I have tried to indicate in brief the immense importance which the mutual support instincts inherited by mankind from its extremely long evolution play even now in our modern society, which is supposed to rest upon the principle, everyone for himself and the state for all. 
but which it never has succeeded nor will succeed in realizing, end quote. Kropotkin advocated an alternative economic and social system, which would be coordinated through a horizontal network of voluntary associations with goods distributed in compliance with the physical needs of the individual rather than according to their labor. There have been many others who have also advocated for alternative political and economic systems based on an expanded idea of solidarity. Democratic socialism is one such system that uses our inborn practice of solidarity as a foundation for a new political and economic order. Indeed. And I'm so glad that you brought uh, Kropotkin into this because when he wrote in, in the, at the turn of the century, uh, you know, Charles Darwin's ideas were being misunderstood, adopted, and turned inside out, not unlike Amogelical's reinventing Christianity. Jim, so, may I say one thing there? Please do. Uh, you know, a lot of this has to do with, a lot of us don't know anything about Kropotkin uh, or any of these stories of solidarity <clears throat> that he works on. There's a book by Rebecca Solnit called, I believe, A Paradise Built in Hell. And it's about how people come together in emergencies to take care of each other. But she yeah. says, he says it's against the interest of the state to tell us those stories or have those stories told to us. The state wants us to understand that the military has to come in to take care of things. When oh. really what's likely to happen in an emergency is, and she fills a 400 page book with this, is people showing up in mutual aid. But yes. it's not in the interest of everyone to have those stories told. So oh, I'm indeed. Sure. Even if the current political and economic order is one that values the individual as consumer above the family, the church, mm -hmm. and the community, we can still practice solidarity. Absolutely. Hopefully. Yeah, absolutely. And and as as Linda pointed out, in in emergencies or in you know. Uh, disasters and the pandemic, right? That mm -hmm. uh, people have risen to the, you know, instinctively, I think in many ways, uh, our better instincts um, to uh, rise to mutual aid. Um, but as opposed to that, the state, or, you know, I would, I would put it as uh, neoliberal capitalism, right? Or if you mm -hmm. want market fundamentalism, which means, <laughs> you know, that the market will solve all of our problems, right? Instead of solidarity. Um, Thank you, see, Milton. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, Uncle Milty. Um, so neoliberal capitalism sees solidarity as its mortal enemy. Uh, originally, it was created to destroy the New Deal of the 1930s. Mm -hmm. Neoliberalism seeks to make everyone extremely isolated and powerless by destroying organized solidarity, including unions. In terms of the broadest sense of solidarity, neoliberalism is the single enemy of all on the planet. On one of our previous shows, we looked at the power of nonviolent actions, such as boycotts, strikes, demonstrations, and the like. And they are all founded upon the rock of solidarity, upon the idea that nothing can operate if people act in organized solidarity, because nothing operates without the consent and the cooperation of the 99%. If the 99% withdraws its consent and cooperation, the society grinds to a halt, as we saw in India, actually, not too long ago. Yes. 
Um, so the real power lies not in money, guns, or prisons, but in the unrealized power of the solidarity of the 99%. It's there for the taking and for the organizing. And this is why neoliberalism sees organized solidarity as its mortal enemy. Yeah, and later in this show, we have an excellent example of solidarity as the Missoula Airport ground crew workers bravely show solidarity for each other in walking off of the job and how the community has and can show its solidarity with the workers. Right, you are, Jim. Um, organized solidarity is the power of the 99%. Let's show the power of solidarity in practice. As usual, lots of news to cover from this week. I mean, lots of news. So what's, what is on the top of the list of our current news, Mark? Well, uh, it's still the pandemic, um, despite it being, it's, it's had a top billing here for uh, almost every week since uh, February. <laughs> <laughs> so um, only been replaced by the Black Lives Matter protests last summer. Anyway, uh, despite four months of vaccines against COVID-19 being available, the pandemic is still with us in the U.S. The overall number of new daily COVID-19 cases is now rising at a rate of about 70,000 cases a day. Worldwide, many countries' rates of new cases are also going up, some dramatically, led by the European Union, Brazil, and especially India, with the U.S. right in that mix. For those of you who believe that we need to risk COVID infection to save the economy, the economy will not recover until people feel safe enough from the coronavirus and have enough money to spend into the economy. The World Health Organization, WHO, advised governments that before reopening, rates of positivity and testing should remain at 5% or lower for at least 14 days, which means that out of all tests conducted for COVID, how many came back positive it should be less, it should be 5% or less for two weeks. Montana, the past two weeks, has met the goal with a steady positivity rate of 4.5%. And we're the only one in the region that's, that's meeting that. One of the highest positivity rates in the nation is in Idaho, which is falling, but still at 22%. South Dakota is steady at an 11% positivity testing rate. Wyoming is steady at 4% with, and with three days in the past two weeks of rates slightly above 5% has otherwise met the WHO standard for partially reopening the economy. North Dakota, which had also earlier exceeded WHO standards, has now fallen below them with a decreasing positivity rate of 7%. Montana has reported 49 hospitalizations as of Friday, about the same as it has been for the past two weeks. So only now, according to the World Health Organization, can Montana begin to slowly reopen the economy. That's news to a lot of people. But things are way more open than that, aren't they? Even yeah. with the threat of new COVID-19 variants coming into Montana, um, Governor Greg Wolf Whisperer Gianforti is refusing to impose mask mandates. And just on Thursday, the Montana legislature stopped all in-person meetings because of a COVID outbreak. In large numbers of um, Republicans, did I say that forcefully enough, in the legislature <laughs> refused to wear masks at all. Yeah, that's right, Jim. And so like the Idaho legislature that 
two weeks ago had closed down. Basically, they're doing everything by Zoom at this point uh, in the Montana legislature. Uh, so even though Montana's rates are, are, are actually pretty low, um, it may be tempting to think otherwise, but we're still a ways from beating COVID-19. And we reopened way too soon as we still don't have enough money in working people's hands, compounding the problems and trying to control the pandemic. Congress's rather ineffective action has put states in a very tough position. Either close down the economy, control the COVID, but severely reducing people's income, or leave the economy partially open to allow people more economic security, but to allow the pandemic to infect and kill more people than otherwise would be the case. Uh, And yet again, it's that time in the show when we say that is a Sophie's choice. No matter what you choose, it creates harm. Indeed. And these uh, COVID-19 figures, according to the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center website and the state of Montana. We are certainly nowhere done with this virus yet, as it's still at large in the U.S. and spreading. At 566,000 deaths, the U.S. is still the world leader in COVID-19 deaths. As the pandemic took hold, life expectancy in the United States dropped one full year during the first half of 2020, according to a February 18 Centers for Disease Control and Prevention report, with even greater declines seen among Black and Hispanic people and Native people, I would imagine. Uh, And according to the Lawi Mm. Institute, the U.S. is rated 94th out of 98 countries, almost at the bottom, in our public health response to the pandemic. The U.S. accounted for 19% of all the deaths in the world and for 23% of the confirmed cases, all with still only 4% of the world's population. Oh, Lowy Institute is in Australia? That's correct. Oh, okay. So they get the the long view. They're not up in our face. Uh, That continues to be a grim thing to be exceptional at, and the numbers have been unwavering. Yep, they're, month they're dropping after month after month. Yep, they're dropping a little bit um, by one percentage point from a couple weeks ago. Oh, but good. probably due to India is just out of control and mm-hmm. it's probably the highest. The infection rate there is probably the highest they have seen during the entire pandemic. So, oh. um, you know, not good, not good for India. Um, And we have been saying since February of 2020, and we will keep saying it until the pandemic is completely beaten, it is basic solidarity. There's our word of the week. There's our base. Mm -hmm. It is basic solidarity for everyone to wear masks, to distance themselves from others, to get a vaccination, and to frequently wash their hands if we're going to beat this pandemic. Um, Solidarity requires some sacrifice, but it is essential for every It is essential. For every person that does not do these precautions, we are that much further from controlling the virus, achieving herd immunity through vaccination, and fully reopening the economy. Yeah, and I, you, t- you, you, you touched a really interesting point that um, wearing a mask is the definition of solidarity. Maybe that's why the, um, the AM shock jock are you know so stridently telling people take your mask off feel the freedom it's all a hoax yeah that's that that's kind of uh i i would say they're just 
kind of touting the the neoliberal line, if you will, oh, yeah. that uh, that uh, uh, that you're you're an individual consumer and uh, that's all that matters. Uh, you know, right. other people really don't matter, which yeah. I think is f- fundamental to that worldview. And, and uh, speaking of consumption, how about um, vaccinations? Um, how are we doing, Mark? Well, overall, it's going slow, but it is picking up the pace a little bit uh, for the first time, which is a good sign. Great. Montana has only fully immunized 27% of our population as of Friday, an increase of four percentage points since last week. We were on a steady increase of three, and now it's four, so a little faster. However, that is slightly below average for the country, which is, is at about 30% fully vaccinated. Uh, according to data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. So uh, it's picking up in the rest of the country, not so much in Montana. Uh, In Montana, everyone can now make an appointment to get vaccinated and should. Uh, According to The Hill on April 16th, Anthony Fauci, the nation's top infectious disease expert, told Business Insider in an interview last week that between 70% and 85% of the population needs to be vaccinated to reach herd immunity. He said this could happen by June if the U.S. administers 3 million vaccine doses per day on average. But a decision from the CDC and the Food and Drug Administration earlier this week to halt the use of Johnson & Johnson's one-dose coronavirus vaccine due to reports about rare blood clots will likely slow down efforts. Vaccinations with J&J's vaccine will be paused while the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices gathers and examines more information on the risks. It's unclear when the panel will meet again, though it could happen within the next week. However, White House COVID-19 Response Coordinator Jeff Zients said the pause wouldn't have a significant impact on the vaccination effort due to the steady supply of Pfizer's and Moderna's vaccine. Overall, nearly 103 million doses of Pfizer's vaccine have been administered, according to CDC data. 87 million doses of Moderna's vaccine and just under 8 million doses of Johnson & Johnson's vaccine have also been administered. No, I know where two doses of Moderna went. (laughs) (laughs) And one more from Moderna as well. Yeah. Yeah. And two from me. So we, we all got the Moderna. And that's two shots for all of us. Well, Mark? I'm I'm working on my second one uh, on the, the April 28th. April 28th is when I get my second one. So gotcha. Yeah. Well, not 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 long. It's it's getting there. Yep. That's a good thing. Yeah. But um, this is this is the part of the show that makes me tremble and shiver. Um, I'm afraid to ask how we are doing on the economic front any good news well any it's mixed it, it yeah it there's some it's mixed like usual i mean biden did lay out his two trillion plus plan to rebuild the nation's infrastructure uh this politically and economically critical legislation is just the beginning it's just beginning its long road so we will have more on it in future shows it probably won't be completed at the earliest by late summer. Um, Mm -hmm. But, and so that's the good news. Uh, But according to tracktherecovery.org, while employment rates have rebounded to nearly pre-COVID-19 levels for high wage workers, 
they remain significantly lower for low-wage workers. As of January 20th, those workers making over $60,000 a year had an unemployment rate of just 1.6%. Those workers making less than $27,000 a year had an unemployment rate of 28%. Still, a wide gap in the bad economic effects, mainly on the working poor. The figures for last year in Montana show a very similar pattern as noted by the Montana Department of Labor and Industry in their February 2021 newsletter. It said, while the pandemic changed many aspects of Montana's economy, the number of high paid jobs in Montana continued to grow. Job losses in 2020 were concentrated in low wage jobs that paid below 30,000 per year. The inconsistency of job growth between high and low wage jobs suggests the pandemic had disparate impacts mm. on the state's workforce. While many Montanans still find themselves out of work, the growth of high pay bracket jobs is a bright, stop, bright spot for the state's recovery. Oh, I'm gl- so glad you have access to numbers like that, Mark, because I, I, I get all of it from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, but but the you know the region that Montana's in doesn't doesn't do a breakout that allows me to see the things you see. So a, a bright spot also was when Congress passed the American Recovery Plan or ARP at nearly two trillion and directed almost all of the benefits to lower and middle income people, which means there is little to no dollars going to the wealthy in this country from the ARP. We hope we hope fingers crossed. Right. I wonder well, if track the recovery will be like Mao's, you know, long march <laughs> or the long, yeah, beginning the long road. The long, the long road to yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> recovery. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, and, and we'll see. I mean, we'll, we, you know, we're going to follow that as it, as it unfolds. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and there's plenty of uh, opposition, it seems like, to this uh, critical legislation. But, you know, um, uh, you know, wealthy people did make out like bandits under the CARES Act, which was passed last year, about a year ago. So um, they, they've got mm-hmm. theirs uh, in the tune of multi-trillions. Um, so. Yeah, so. so all that said, the American Rescue Plan is still a, a temporary but necessary Band-Aid. Would you two agree? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. And as important as it is, it's still not big enough, nor does it provide the transformational changes necessary to undo the economic disparities that made the pandemic far worse for some people than it should have been. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely true. Yeah, this is why the pandemic hit most people so hard. There was terrible weakness in the economy to begin with. Yeah, absolutely. It was right. just and the last straw. But in this case, it was a whole hay bale. <laughs> <laughs> and that hurts. <laughs> it sure <Yeah>. does. <laughs> um, passing a $15 an hour minimum wage bill would have directly helped millions of workers pull themselves out of poverty and underemployment. It could have been a major structural change in the economic inequality within a bill that is just temporary and a Band-Aid. Unfortunately, many Democratic senators, including Montana's John Tester, voted down the increase in the minimum wage Mm. in the so-called stimulus package. It could have been one part of getting our economy and our politics on sounder footing. Other programs that can be added to this list include Medicare for All, 
student debt cancellation, the Green New Deal, and a federal jobs guarantee, and the PRO Act. Uh, mm-hmm. Simply getting us through the pandemic just sets us up for a meltdown politically and economically down the road. For example, uh, you know, people who are behind in paying their rents or their mortgages, uh, if they're still unemployed, they're not catching up. They're just falling further and further behind. Right. And so when the moratorium on collecting uh, back rents uh, mm-hmm. fails uh, or is, is ended, uh, then uh, all, all heck is going to break loose, right? right? Uh, and and, and it, because landlords aren't getting their money and tenants can't pay it, and mm-hmm. what are, what's going to happen, right? It's going to be terrible. Um, yeah, it, it's further proof that the 60 or 65% of the population that's living paycheck to paycheck um, didn't need the what what has been dealt them in the last year yeah you know, absolutely. I'm, I'm reminded of the term the precariat a proletariat mm-hmm. yep. that that mm-hmm. in exactly that is truly people that are doing everything they can and they can barely keep their head above water right and i in in you you can hear in the uh, interviews with the workers at the airport Many of them, I mean, are working multiple jobs too, right? And yeah, that's almost the rule. Yeah, when you're uh, absolutely. Part of the ladder. Yep, yep. Um, so, simply getting us through the pandemic just sets us up for a meltdown down the road. What Congress should have done all along is what Representative Pramila Jayapal, Democrat from Seattle, mm-hmm. our favorite uh, representative, I think, proposed last year what should have uh, been the model moving forward to this year. Jayapal proposed, and what most industrial countries in the world actually did, was to guarantee wages and business overhead costs for the duration of the pandemic. Absolutely. How, what is so hard about that? It's un-American. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Un-American. That's a great segue into whatever the next story might be. <laughs> yes. Well, well, last week we covered a bit of the review of the union election loss at the Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama, just uh, south of where you're at, Jim. Yeah, um, I was on the line holding a sign. All right. Good for you. That's showing solidarity. All right. Um, and since Jane McAlevey had printed her review in the Nation magazine on April 9th, Social media has been aflame with controversy over her article. So I thought we'd summarize her article here. Bring some of that fire and flame to the voice of the people, Mark. Absolutely, Jim. So uh, like the torches light. Yes. And get the pitchforks. We're right. ready to go. Um, pitchforks are coming. The pitchforks are coming. Absolutely. Um, that's what rural people can bring to the fight, right? Um, (laughs) I, I have a pitchfork in my garden right now. So, um, Hmm. it just, I, I just need to put a new handle on it. That's all. So, (laughs) um, well, make it a long handle. (laughs) Yeah. You can really dig deep. (laughs) Right. Right. Um, well, Jane McAlevey, right. Wrote in the nation, uh, earlier today, and, and this is, quite long. So interrupt me at any time you want, because this it's, uh, she gets into a lot of detail, but it, and I've edited this like two thirds of it out. So it's it's uh, great that she has such an august platform to, to spread her views on. 
Right, and she's and she's, she's, she's now seen as being she's mainstream. Hero. She's my hero. Yeah, she's a contributing editor of the nation, I believe, too. And she kind of regrets in retrospect because of all the kerfuffle around this having been printed in the nation, because as she put it, not many of the workers in Bessemer read the nation. So, mm. um, but I'm sure, I'm sure copies can be sent to them. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, she wrote, earlier today, the National Labor Relations Board announced the results of the vote on whether workers at the Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama would join a union. The vote was 738 in favor to 1,798 against. It's bad news, but it doesn't mean workers in future Amazon campaigns won't or can't win. They can. The results were not surprising, however, for reasons that have more to do with the approach used in the campaign itself than any other factor. The stories of horrific working conditions at Amazon are well known. Long before the campaign at Bessemer, anyone paying even scant attention would be aware that workers toil at such a grueling pace that the resort to urinating in bottles so as not to get disciplined for taking too much to use the facilities, which the company calls time off task. <laughs> God. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Um, workers at Amazon desperately need to unionize in Alabama, Germany, and any other place for the high tech futuristic employer with medieval attitudes about employees sets up a job site of any kind. With conditions so bad, what explains the defeat in Bessemer? Three factors weigh heavily in any unionization election. The outrageously vicious behavior of employers, some of it illegal, mostly fully legal, uh, including harassing and intimidating workers and telling bold lies, which outside of countries with openly repressive governments is unique to the United States. Here, here. And that is... Again, people go ahead. No, I was just going to say it's something else we seem to be exceptional about. Right? Yeah. Yeah. People have a hard time understanding that that's we're we're one of the leading world violators of human rights on the job. Uh, this, the, the another uh, factor weighing heavily in any unionization election is the strategies and tactics used in the campaign by the organizers and the broader social political context in which the union election is being held. So those three factors in any sort of union election are, are uh, help determine the results. Mm -hmm. There's nothing new about the ruthless nature of employer campaigns to defeat unions. The Amazon campaign and just about every union election since the Reagan era are proof enough that to stand any chance of reversing the diminishing fortunes of America's workers H.R. 842, the Protect the Right to Organize or PRO Act of 2021, which just passed the House, is desperately needed. Support for unions today is at record highs, and support for big business is at historic lows. Sadly, popular support for any proposal has little, if nothing, to do with legislation getting approved by Congress. And as we've talked about in previous shows, uh, that uh, it's the wealthy that get their bills passed and it's the rest of us that uh, very rarely get our bills passed. And, oh, and, yes. And somebody, somebody called the democracy, called democracy by coincidence. That is, yes. Somebody like <laughs> you or me does get a bill passed that we would like. It's pure coincidence. Because right, right. Same thing as the big money wanted. Otherwise, yeah, it's a random yep. event. It's it's a delta event. 
not or, something that can be anticipated. <laughs> or, or it's where the, the interests of the oligarchs coincide with the interests of ordinary people. Oh, right. I think that's more it because the political system is really controlled by the oligarchy in this country. Um, support for, or let's see, um, given the history of failed attempts at progressive labor law change under Democrat controlled administrations, even with majorities in both houses, passage of the PRO Act seems like a long shot. But in spite of the many obstacles thrown in the path of workers trying to form unions, lifting up the strategies and tactics that have led to the most successful outcomes is crucial. To accept the defeat of hard to win unionization campaigns is to accept a very bleak future. To stand a chance at winning the hardest campaigns, the best methods must be deployed from the earliest days of a campaign and followed throughout the election. Wishful thinking and inexperienced hunches have no place in a campaign against an employer as sophisticated and well-resourced as Amazon. And, I, and I'm gonna say this, that line right there probably uh, irritated more uh, labor leaders okay, who don't, don't mm -hmm. understand this than anything else. And it, of course the employer is going to be nasty. Of, of course the employer is gonna use illegal tactics. You just have to deal with it. And, but, but what you do have in your control is to use good organizing practices. Mm -hmm. um, wishful thinking has no place in this, in this business. Uh, and I learned that the hard way. I'll just say, I'm not, I, I won't say that I was always great at this and a lot of wishful thinking. I got my, my uh, hat handed to me. Um, from the get-go, the campaign in Bessemer had what many experienced organizers recognize as nearly fatal flaws. The first of these was a widely inaccurate assumption about how many employees worked in the warehouse. When inaccurate assumptions about how many employees worked in the warehouse, when, oh, when the union filed the official paperwork with the NLRB to hold the election on November 20, 20th, 2020, a time when few were paying attention to anything other than the United States presidential election, the retail, wholesale, and department store union, the RWDSU, assumed that there was 1,500 workers at the warehouse. Not long after RWDSU filed, Amazon responded to the NLRB that there were approximately 5,800 workers in the warehouse, over three times, maybe four, almost four times as many. In a sign that might have seemed encouraging to the union organizers, they were able, between late November and mid-December, to gather enough additional worker signatures to meet the minimum 30% threshold to hold an election. Less experienced organizers are often confused when workers sign an authorization card to hold an election and then vote no. Uh, experienced organizers never frame the question as, do you want the right to vote whether or not to have a union? We ask them to commit to vote yes and to sign a petition saying so when they sign the authorization card for the election. Mm. These are very different questions and they get you very different results in the end. And I might add another problem here is the 30% threshold to call an election. Organizers never do that. And she might talk about this later, but, you know, uh, 70 to 75% number of cards signed. Only then you go above ground and try to hold an election because you're going to lose a bunch of workers. 
Mm-hmm. And yeah, McAlevey says better 95, right? Right, right. Why you're not right. ready for a strike. Yeah, she talks a lot about these structural tests, right? And one of them is how many workers are willing to put their names on a petition, which will be presented, in, right. right? Because that's different from just signing a card. And Absolutely, absolutely. And we'll, and we'll get... We've we've had structural tests as a word of the week, <laughs> words of the week, uh, but we'll we'll get to that. Uh, she gets to that too as well. Um, other structural tests that weren't done. Um, so uh, the next warning sign uh, came in February when Amazon launched www.doitwithoutdues.com, a website describing all the things workers could do with the money they would otherwise pay in dues to a union. Uh, Amazon concurrently posted a hashtag on Twitter, the ploy backfired. Pro-union activists around the country took to the platform to tweet one clever response after another, making the reactions to Amazon almost as much of an obsession as Twitter jokes about the ship stuck in the Suez Canal. Uh, To organizers, however funny the national pushback on Twitter was, giving people a digitized platform to show their disapproval of Amazon A deeper cause for concern was revealed in the official response from the RWDSU. Its national president, Stuart Applebaum, and other campaign surrogates went on the offensive to prove Amazon's leadership was lying. Quote, Amazon is trying, uh, Applebaum told the Washington Post, Amazon is trying to make dues the issue, even though people don't have to pay dues. That's a very curious quote. Similar messaging dominated the coverage in response to the entirely predictable, entirely predictable union busting message about dues. There has not been a single campaign that I have been involved with that employers didn't go after union dues. It just, mm-hmm. it, it's, it is part of the woodwork. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, Applebaum, when he told that Washington Post, similar messaging had dominated the coverage in response to the entirely predicted union busting message, with one union official telling NPR, as some workers point out, Alabama's right to work laws say employees can opt out of paying union dues, end quote. Although the union's response was accurate, workers don't have to pay dues in a right to work state. Successful campaign organizers never suggest workers can opt out of paying dues, just the opposite. (laughs) Organizers skilled in hard conversations will have first done heavy inoculation about the dues issue long before the employer does, because it is entirely predictable that there will be signs everywhere in bathrooms, lunchrooms, break rooms, beside the time clocks, social media, you name it, suggesting you get more from the company than you do by paying dues to a union. A more nuanced response is one in which the organizer asks workers why the company suddenly wants to discuss how workers spend their own money, which, and that's an argument I've used Mm -hmm. quite often. The organizers can then help the worker understand that paying dues is essential to build the power required to take on monstrous employers like Amazon. Um, The semantics and messaging raise concerns beyond the dues conversation. In pro-union placard after pro-union placard, messages proclaim such slogans as, quote, the union is on your side, end quote. In the many videos flowing out of Bessemer on social media, 
activists and organizers regularly talk about the union as if a union is something other than the workers who are trying to form one. Critical error. A better slogan would have been, when workers unite, real change happens, or anything that didn't make the union sound like a building name or street address. In the vast majority of successful campaigns, how and where, well, did you want to say something before I jump to the next issue? No. Okay. Um, I'll say something as long as you ask. Yeah. Um, It's the campaign was very much in, you know, fitting the, the Southern tradition. And there, there is a hunger to feel like you are part of, um, something outside of yourself not not a formulation of people just like you right and and it's in in for 400 years it's been um the way to get along is to deal with the people that are above you and be perceived as um cooperative right right and it never and it and that language um, you know, bereft of saying when we as people unite and become the people as one is is incomprehensible. You know, everybody right. goes to the Southern Baptist Church where they don't say Jesus is one of us. If we live his life, we will be what he wanted us to become. Never happens from the pulpit. But, you know, too, though, that uh, there is also a tradition in the South of. Uh, from my understanding uh, of, of real solidarity that breaks beyond those, those boundaries. So for oh, instance, during the, during, the civ- during the Civil War, uh, there was plenty of, uh, uh, you know, Southern poor white farmers, okay, who were drafted into the war against the Union, came back and started warring against the Confederacy in, in, in their own in their own homes, right? Out of their own homes mm-hmm. and making, and making alliances with, with, you know, former slaves or runaway slaves. Um, I mean, that's kind of a very dramatic, uh, yeah. but, but there's always there, there, that's the, you know, what you've described as, is kind of, you know, how the plantation is maintained, but there are plenty of examples of how uh, that isn't a hundred percent either. So. That's true. And but that's what happens two blocks away in Tennessee, which, which wasn't appropriate <laughs> well, Mark, for plantation I mean, agriculture. What, in Alabama, it's different. What you say, Mark, about uh, poor white people and former slaves joining ranks is exactly what scares the power structures the most. And that's why we're still even today dealing with the kind of talk that separates poor, poor white people from poor right. black or poor Latino people, right? Because exactly. a unionized front of poor people is the scariest thing management and the establishment can think of. Right. And people who are being organized need to think about the union, for instance, as a way mm-hmm. of uniting uh, any one of any race or any gender or any sexual, uh, you know, uh, uh, orientation, uh, any of those identity politics all united by, uh, by class, 
Um, but people, it, it, for people to really break through that and to really own it, the union, they have to see the union as their organization, of, of just an organization of workers, not some outside force, because an outside force is never uh, going to be finally accepted. Um, you know, people have to accept it as their own, make it their own. And uh, I think this is a lesson. This is something I think some union leaders have a very difficult time understanding. Um, oh, it's yes. A big, it's a big point. Um, in the vast majority of successful campaigns, McAlevey continues, uh, how and where conversations with workers take place is crucial. On a web search engine, if you enter Amazon changes traffic light pattern in Alabama, the results show dozens of stories highlighting one of the many tactics Amazon deployed to frustrate the activists and organizers in the campaign. While nefarious, it is completely within the norm of hard unionization fights in the United States. What was concerning to experienced organizers, however, was the realization that the majority of the face-to-face -face contacts with workers were happening at the plant gate which is another tactic that successful organizers never use. Why? Because the employer is watching. That holds for all employers, let alone Amazon, a company that actually develops surveillance systems. <laughs> the, the, the last thing nervous workers want is to be seen near the place they were talking with union supporters. Successful campaigns require house calls, unannounced physical visits to workers' homes so the conversation can be had away from the company's watchful eye. In an interview in the American Prospect, an organizer in the Amazon campaign explained that they were not house calling because of the COVID pandemic. The union's communications director confirmed this to me, Jane McAlevey, that there had been no house calling because of COVID. But in a hard to win campaign, you should put on a mask, ring the doorbell, have your sanitizer dangling from your chest or in your hands so it's obvious and step back and engage the worker socially distant but securely, just like they did in the um, Georgia elections, mm -hmm. right? For sure. There is no, there is no substitute and, and this is backed up with all kinds of data. There is no substitute for house call calling in a hard campaign mm -hmm. period. One of the most important tactics in hard unionization fights is what the organizers called majority public structure tests. Back to what you were saying, Linda. Mm -hmm. A majority public structure test is when a majority of workers who are eligible to vote in an upcoming union election or who are voting to strike, sign a petition or take photos and produce a public poster, flyer or website that displays their signature or faces with a message stating their intent to vote yes. Um, so what that means is that, uh, in, in why it's a structured test is that uh, you can start off being totally, you know, uh, uh, in secret, right? People can sign cards in secret sort of thing. But at some point you're gonna have to be public. And so, uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, and you're not, you'll almost never get a majority of workers to sign cards in secret unless it's a terrifically hot shot. Uh, but, uh, or there's other, you know, conditions uh, being met. And, um, and they're kind of, uh, most workers in my experience are waiting to see what their coworkers do, right? Who, right. what the, 
what the organic leaders, what are they saying about this? Um, and, uh, and so when asked why this wasn't done in Bessemer, the union, union's communication director told me, Jane McAlevey, it had to protect the workforce from being fired. So it didn't want to do anything in public. Game over. A common yeah. error made in hard union battles is for the efforts leaders to think there's something unique about their particular circumstances. The industry, group of workers, type of workers, region of the country, time in history, level of surveillance, and so forth, that justifies not following good organizing practices like performing structure tests and eventually making those tests public once you reach a majority. When fear is running hard inside a facility, which it certainly was in the Amazon election, the only way to overcome it is by asking each pro-union worker to step out and declare themselves pro-union publicly. What protects the workers, quote, unquote, is when a majority of them take this action together, all at once. You are teaching collective power in the conversations and actions. Structure tests are run over and over privately and quietly until a majority of workers are willing to sign. Once a majority signs, that is generally a serious indication but no means guaranteed that the campaign will be victorious. But you don't stop with one public structure test. You keep going because there's generally an explosion of additional support once the hesitant co-workers who are holding back realize that, in fact, a majority mm -hmm. of the co-workers are uniting. There's, you know, I'll just step aside. There's uh, people like to be on a winning side. Yes. And so once they see that there's, going to be a winning side, then you can get a lot more people. But you can never do that unless you go public with it, right? Mm -hmm. um, so uh, majority structure tests prove that the people, workers in a, high, in a high fear campaign trust the most, their own co-workers, and maybe more specifically their own organic leaders, are ready to declare for themselves that enough is enough. Workers watching co-workers take a stand in large numbers is what wins, not rallies with out-of-state superstars, not famous football players, not famous actors and actresses, not even Bernie Sanders or the president of the United States. There's one person missing there, the person that made Georgia possible. You know, Stacey Abrams was there, got a lot of publicity, but I wonder if she had time to have some serious discussions with the rank and file and figure out, are you guys going to do what we did in Georgia? Well, it, it's not with the rank and file. She should have had that conversation with that oh, conversation okay. that I know. she, she should have had with is with the union the leadership and the organizers. Yeah. Okay. And, and I, even, I misspoke. That's what I meant. Well, yeah. Well, well, but I think it's a good point because I've heard other people say something similar that even yeah. if Stacey, Stacey Abrams came and gave a great speech before workers, that, that would have done nothing either. And she, and she right. probably would have refused to do it because she understands that the deep organizing is what needs to happen. And this mm -hmm. is what McAlevey is totally <laughs> describing. Right. It is deep organizing, right? Exactly. And so it's significant she's went omitted in that list of celebrities. <clears throat> Stacey Abrams didn't win Georgia. Right. Exactly. Right. He just worked with organizers who went out mm -hmm. and everywhere. So yeah, it's her persistence that won, not not well, you know, not a magic wand. It's it's and, and it was the strategy 
it was the voters that came out that they right. helped drive out. Those voters is what won Georgia for, exactly. for the Democratic Senate Agreed candidates. Completely. So um, people, yeah, people have to understand there's no magic wands here. Um, mm -hmm. So um, when there are more outside supporters and staff being quoted and featured in a campaign, then there are workers from the facility. That's a clear sign that defeat is looming. Mm -hmm. Um, this campaign likely should not have been run once the organizers, this is Jane McAlevey speaking, have run once the organizers realized how off their assessment was of how many workers were actually in the warehouse. There's no justification for putting workers on what organizers call a death march. For Bessemer workers, the likely next step is that the union will file a huge number of totally justified objections, or also known as unfair labor practice charges, against Amazon. They are likely to win the right to another election based on the illegal behavior of the employer. In the legendary Smithfield uh, meatpacking plant organizing campaign, where workers at the nation's largest hog slaughterhouse won their union after a 16 year fight and on their third election attempt, the lesson people should have taken is that yes, labor law is broken, but also you don't take shortcuts when you run a campaign. Many of the same limitations in the first round of Smithfield were true in the first run in Bessemer. It's time we don't take workers for granted. We don't sell them short and we don't create scorched earth haphazardly. Mm -hmm. Every worker in the Bessemer campaign deserved to win. And if the rules for unionization in the United States came close to being fair, they would have won. But the rules aren't fair, quite the opposite. They are outrageously unfair. What workers trying to form unions against immoral employers do deserve is the kind of effort that stands a chance of winning. There's plenty of evidence of what works. Social media and shortcut digital approaches don't work when fear and division is the central weapon. Workers can win unions and workers can strike and win. It's as hard as hell. And to do that requires a no shortcut approach. And it never has. Any student of American labor history knows that it, it was a struggle from day one and lives were lost. Right. But and the, they persevered. They right. persevered. And the struggle, I mean, it's been going on in other countries since before our country was born. Right. Mm -hmm. And they've learned some things and they've come up with a somewhat better system in some in some countries. But. Well, and even, even in this country, I mean, it, going back to the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the 1930s mm -hmm. and 40s, all we need to do is, uh, is really understand how it was they organized in actually maybe in some ways worse conditions than today. Oh. And, um, and, and, we're able to, and we're able to build the labor movement that, that we enjoy, you know, sort of the... Uh, the, the remnants of, right? But there still is labor unions. There's still, you know, a union movement in this country. And uh, you have to thank the organizers from the CIO days for much of that, right? That, to, to get that established. Right. Well, Eric so, says the problem with socialism in the United States, and I don't know how you feel about this, Mark or Jim, but he says the problem with socialism in the United States as he quotes Lenin, not John Lennon, but 
Um, <laughs> Vladimir. Apparently said, and I think I've said it on this show before, American socialism was always a party of dentists. You know, and you can't have a party of dentists or a party of celebrities who are really going to win, right? Right, it's, right. Um, that, that kind of a movement. Right? Yep, absolutely. And Nothing and against take... dentists, although I'm not. Yes. <laughs> yes, we all love dentists, not to be in their chairs, but, um... no, but you don't want to make your dentist angry. So please, <laughs> yeah, I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, and I, I can't speak for the past, you know, history, but I, I, I think that currently now uh, in the, you know, in, in whatever movement there is, right, whatever movement for solid, for social justice or environmental uh, mm-hmm. integrity or for, you know, workers um, that uh, too often it's, you know, the, the very hard and difficult, emotionally draining work of organizing yeah. is skipped over in favor of media campaigns and, uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. clever memes on Facebook. Right. Yeah. Right. And and who will ever know what was the turning point? I, I was part of many organizing efforts to get a repair station, not a manufacturer, but a repair station. So it's aviation, but a, a different industry to yeah. become organized in, in light of the fact that across the street, people made two or three times as much money and had a benefit package and they had Boeing on their coveralls. And we tried really hard uh, to offer our assistance to the local that was trying to organize this repair station. So, and they go out in their satin, uh, you know, softball team jackets and say, don't you want to be like me? You know, I'm a big deal. I have a chance to come and talk to you in your home. And some aspect of what they were talking about was appealing, but a lot of it looked like you're just, I'm, I'm just trading bosses, but the message, the good part of the message stuck and a decade later, two decades later, that's now an employee owned business. (laughs) So they took the medicine, they listened, they thought about it. And when, and later down the road made a choice. Yeah. Well, and I so think they won. I think the the takeaway here is the title of one of Jane McAlevey's books, which is "No Shortcuts." Right. Yes, no shortcuts. You don't take it, a shortcut through a jacket or through a celebrity right. or through a, a meme on Facebook. Right. And 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 I would say that that can work, Jim. And and maybe the, tell me if this was a high fear campaign were workers really afraid of their jobs like at amazon yeah they were afraid of their jobs because they were making starvation wages the only people that didn't have to work 70 hours a week you know just to pay the rent and make the payment on their used car were the retired military people who who thought it was a lark and they really didn't care about Mm -hmm. their income they had a you know exhaustively you know 
complete and comprehensive benefit package. They had, a, you know, as retirees, they had an income. So they were just there to hang out and have a new circle of friends to go party with and work on airplanes. Yeah. Yeah. But real people, not so much. Yeah. Well, okay. That's uh, all the time we have for this section. And we're going to be um, listening to an interview done uh, earlier this week uh, with some of the Missoula airport workers who walked off their job to protest their employer's refusal to raise their abysmally low wages. Uh, I interviewed three of them last Thursday on the picket line in front of the Missoula airport, on which you will note everyone was wearing a mask. <laughs> Good. Great. That's great. That's solidarity. You're listening to Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99%. And you are listening to it in the Missoula Valley on KFGM 105.5 FM, Missoula Community Radio. Or you are hearing it streaming on Saturdays from noon to 2 on 1055kfgm.org. And uh, you may be listening to it on podcast, now available on anchor.fm and on Spotify and other uh, podcast apps that you might have. Um, And you can search for it under Voice of the People Radio by and for the 99%. shall run. There can be no power greater anywhere beneath the sun. Yet what force on earth is weaker than the feeble strength of one? But the union makes us strong. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. For the union makes It is we who plowed the prairies, built the cities where they trade, dug the mines and built the workshops, endless miles of railroad laid. Now we stand outcast and starving mid the wonders we have made, but the union makes us strong. Solidarity forever, solidarity forever, solidarity taken untold millions that they never toil to earn but without our brain and muscle not a single wheel can turn we can break their haughty power gain our freedom when we learn that the union makes us strong solidarity forever solidarity forever solidarity forever For the union makes us strong In 
our hands is placed a power greater than their hoarded gold, greater than the might of atoms magnified a thousandfold. We can bring to birth a new world from the ashes of the old, for the union makes us strong. Solidarity forever. standing in front of the uh, new terminal, the Missoula Airport, um, and um, I have, uh, and there's, uh, oh, about a dozen and a half people standing on a picket line, and uh, we have uh, one of the leaders of the workers at the, the Works for Unify at the airport, um, and uh, t tell us who you are and tell us uh, what, you, what you do. So my name is Jared Bonney. I'm a ramp agent for uh, Unify Services that contracts both Delta and United here in the Missoula Airport. Uh, my job consists of marshalling an aircraft. We load and unload, uh, both load and unload aircraft. Uh, we do all servicing uh, of like lav and potable water. Uh, we do the cleaning inside. And then we're also trained uh, as full employees to do counters and gates as well uh, for both Delta and United. Uh, so, and what we're doing here right now is we are protesting uh, our wages. We've had employees that have been here for several years, uh, some upwards of 15 years, and uh, between changes of contracts, they've actually seen their wages go down. And one of our employees who has been here for seven years, he's been hearing uh, a promise of increased wages for the last five, and they always tell us, you know, we'll get your wages after summer, we'll get your wages after the holiday season. And I've been here for about three years, and I've heard that every single summer and holiday season. Um, and so after you've been here for about five or six years, you get capped out at 1040. Um, and then there's no adjustment for pay, any, anything after that. And with Missoula's increase in the housing market, you know, people coming in from out of state, and uh, the huge blow up that we've seen over the last few years, uh, it has no longer become a competitive or sustainable wage. Uh, for anyone working here that use it as a primary job for themselves. And so we are here trying to fight for, we were originally fighting for $12.50 an hour. Now we are here fighting for at least 15 because we need to have a sustainable wage. We need to have employees that you know are reliable. We can have full-time employees that need the qualifications that they need because they expect us to you know run, run effectively and efficiently like by ourselves and because we can't get a hireable staff they just constantly bring in TDYs and temporary duty employees who come in from primarily right now Spokane and Kalispell and they are getting paid more than we do under the same contracting company that we work for so Kalispell is getting paid $12.50 uh, and the reason they got paid $12.50 is because they were afraid of hiring when they took over the new contract and so they decided they needed to they needed to negotiate a semi-competitive wage uh, Kalispell gets paid 16, or Spokane gets paid $16 an hour uh, because of the state minimum wage being 15, they get their dollar raise uh, with the cross training that they receive. And those employees that come in are paid, uh, they have their hotels paid for, they're given $35 a day in food, they have their gas paid for for travel, and they are offered their overtime and uh, 
and things like that. So, so we are literally watching them instead of fixing our wage problems, just bringing in employees uh, from other stations to deal with the contracts so that way they don't have to negotiate our wage. Yeah. Yeah. Another name for them is scabs. Right, scabs. <laughs> so, um, uh, Jared, what's, uh, what prompted, what, what specifically uh, prompted this? I mean, you were, were you one of the first ones to walk out, or what, 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 what led up to this? So, uh, we originally kept hearing, you know, we were going to get the wages, we were going to get the wages. Uh, they wouldn't give us, they said they couldn't give us uh, any tangible evidence of when or what we were gonna, going to get paid when the no negotiations happened. We were originally promised a pre-COVID wage increase, and then when COVID hit, they uh, took a step back and said that they would have to, again, renegotiate uh, the wages. So uh, we've been waiting a year for them to renegotiate, and we have sent, uh, we have sent letters into them, both from station and employees, you know, stating, uh, you know, we need, we need this wage increase. We haven't been offered anything but minimal uh, COVID relief uh, from the company. And so after, after hearing it the last time and then them telling us they would simply bring in more TDYs for us, it was kind of the straw in the camel's back where we, you know, decided if we wanted to see the wage increase, we had to do something ourselves. Um, so, so they were kind of leading you on, leading you, saying just wait and wait and wait, and, and it, it never happened. And uh, obviously uh, making $9, $10 an hour in Missoula is not a living wage. Absolutely. So we, so after this, you know, we finally decided we have to take this into our own hands. Uh, and me and a coworker kind of brought up an idea of a walkout. And then we started speaking with uh, people within the station, you know, what their ideas were, uh, what they thought about the walkout. And when I felt like I had gotten a good support system and uh, like people to agree that the walkout would be the best option, uh, I sent out a letter on April 4th, uh, Sunday, April 4th. And uh, I told them that uh, I explained, you know, the reasons we need the pay increase, uh, what's happening in Missoula between the housing market and the rest of the, the uh, companies that are raising wages to match that. Uh, I sent them out, I sent them a letter and I let them know uh, that we are willing to speak with them. We don't want to move to a walkout, but we are willing to move to a walkout on April 18th. Uh, when they got the letter, I started hearing rumors that they were setting up teams and they were just going to bring in TDYs to cover our shifts so that way they wouldn't have to negotiate the wages. And after I got information on the, uh, on the teams that were getting set up uh, on Sunday the 11th, I decided, you know, I talked with employees and we decided, you know, we'd have to do this Monday. And we had someone uh, that was working with the company, you know, they said that they were gonna be a part of the walkout, they fully supported us. They were letting corporate know uh, what was gonna happen. And so when we walked in on Monday to perform our walkout, our regional manager was sitting at the, at the desk at Ops. Uh, we walked in, he asked us how we were doing. He, I, he, we said, good, you know, we had mild conversation. And I was in civilian clothes, I wasn't in my work outfit. And so he knew something was up and he waited for me to announce that I wouldn't be working and that we would be performing the walkout. He got everyone in station that had showed up. Uh, he asked them, are you working today? You know, uh, we got primarily no's. And then, uh, you know, we had a few employees say, yes, they would be working today. They weren't gonna support the walkout. 
And I assume that was because, you know, they they had realized that things had gotten real and that uh, management was there to squash it out. And after uh, he got he got the confirmation from me that we were walking out and he got the confirmation from the other employees that they were refusing to work that day. Uh, he must have sent out like a text message or something. And they had about 10 employees walking in two by two to cover our shifts uh, from separate stations. From Spokane, from Spokane and Kalispell. Right. Yes. Okay. And so um, at that point, you, uh, you and others walked out yep. in front of the airport and you had you established this picket then, right? Uh, so the, the, the walkout started at four in the morning and we began to talk about how we wanted to have a picket. And so I spoke with... Uh, the airport deputy director he said that we were completely uh free to protest as long as we were peaceful we were not harassing anyone that was coming through whether it was passengers or other employees and we agreed we agreed that we would do that and he gave us the space for a protest we got together uh in conversation and we decided that our uh protest would begin that afternoon at 11 o'clock and so since monday the 12th we have been here every single day from 11 to 2 to catch the Delta and United flight rush to uh, uh, to protest what Unify is doing to its employees. Okay. And uh, so you've been out here uh, Monday, today's Thursday, so you've yep. been out here four days. This is an open-ended until things get resolved? Yep, yep. So we are going to be here until uh, corporate is willing to speak with us. They have brought in uh, higher, higher management uh, above the regional, they brought in, you know, the VP and, uh, well, they were supposed to bring in the VP. They brought in other, uh, uh, our customers, uh, management. So Delta and United management, they brought in, uh, for our company and they had conversations with the employees. And so yesterday we, uh, were told that they would be here, they would be speaking and, uh, we figured that between COVID and social distancing, they wouldn't be able to have it behind closed doors with the employees that they were expecting to have there. And we waited outside until we saw my supervisor walk out and we assumed that he you know, wasn't going to be a part of the meeting. We walked in, uh, they were having the meeting in the lobby. Our regional manager cut us off and he wouldn't, uh, he tried to keep us from getting near the other uh, management. And then when he realized that we were there to stay for that meeting, he cut off this, uh, the, man the other manager, sent them back into the bag room. And uh, we know that we're not allowed on company property anymore since we, we are suspended, but we are allowed within the airport. We walked up to the Delta ticket counter and he cut them off again and moved them into the bag room so that way we could not hear or speak uh, with that, uh, that manager. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and... Um have they given you any answer in terms of sitting down to bargain over wages? Nope. They have completely cut us off. They are refusing to talk to us. I have tried to call uh, both our HR representative and our regional manager. They just let me go to voicemail. They do not call me back. And every time uh, we go to talk to them, they just, you know, tell us that we are suspended uh, pending investigation. Mm -hmm. So we have, we have not been given any information on what will be happening to us for our jobs. We have not been given any information on uh, speaking with higher management and we haven't uh, we haven't been able to communicate with anyone else uh, of the any of the higher-ups within the station to see where to go forward with conversation I, I, I think you're on um, pretty good ground in terms of uh, it, it is the official policy of the US government to encourage collective bargaining 
and um, and what you have done is basically you've uh, requested bargaining and then they suspended you yep. which which is uh, not in uh, that's not bargaining in good faith I'll just say that simply um, and so uh, it, that's very smart that you keep asking to bargain over these wages um, and which you can do you don't need a formal union I mean you're acting like a union right now which is uh, all to the good um, did they uh, did they pull your security badges yep so the morning that we decided to walk out uh, we went over to the baggage claim area on the other side of the airport we sat down we discussed what our plan moving forward was going to be and uh, I had I had realized I had forgotten some personal items uh, inside our operations office and I went back to go get those and our regional stopped me and the other employee that had walked back into the office uh, and asked us for our badges back we gave them our badges and then they brought the PSO to go collect the other employees badges uh, from them in claim Okay. so but technically you're suspended pending an investigation is what they're telling you yep not 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 terminated yet yep so we uh, we didn't get any information uh, the first day and then so on Tuesday we were asking for information we I was trying to call the regional I was trying to call HR I was trying to get a hold of anyone and I was finally able to get a hold of our admin in station and she told me that they she was not able to give me any information they wouldn't speak to her and uh, she had no idea where we were standing as employees and then uh, you know I was like, well, they, they have to give us, you know, whether we've been terminated or not, they have, they have to tell us, we, you know, we can't just be sitting here in limbo. And so after, you know, reaching out and doing all of that, the next day at about 3.30, uh, they started their calls, uh, maybe around 3.30, 4.30, they started their calls and uh, explaining to the employees that had walked out, that they had been suspended. And that actually included an employee who didn't walk out with us uh, he had just happened to miss his alarm Monday morning. He slept in. He had a no-call, no-show. He acknowledged that, but they suspended him, and they would not give him reasoning. So he is currently trying to uh, speak with the regional and HR and get a conversation going about why he was suspended because it is not United policy to suspend an employee who has one no-call, no-show on their record. Um, so, uh, uh, what is what is your plan right now, mo most immediately? You're trying to get with corporate, uh, unify corporate to negotiate. That's that's your primary uh, strategy right now, right? Yep. We have been trying to uh, speak with corporate. We've been trying to speak with uh, management, and uh, like I said, they just have not they have not given us any information on whether we will or when we will be able to uh, speak with them uh, about this issue that has officially taken place inside the airport. So right now, uh, what's the total uh, number of uh, ground crew workers that work for Unify? I believe our ground crew workers, uh, that includes both above wing and below wing in the Unify contract, is roughly 35 to 38 employees. Okay, and explain above wing and below wing. Below wing are the ramp crew. Uh, we do the marshalling, uh, loading and unloading of aircraft. We do the servicing of labs and potable water. And the above wing are our counter agents, our gate agents, and we work in tandem uh, with uh, electrostatically spraying the aircraft. Okay, um, so if, if you're unsuccessful at getting, I mean, I guess, what, what, what's your uh, plan if you're not successful in sitting down negotiating uh, do you, or do you have do you have some ideas of where you're going to go from there? 
Um, we right now our next step is just wanting to speak with corporate, see where we are, see where the investigation is, see what's happening uh, with our suspension. But uh, I'm not entirely sure where we will be going if that isn't uh, negotiated, if we aren't allowed to speak uh, on behalf of ourselves and uh, speak with uh, those higher ups. Uh, I'm not sure where we will be moving next. I believe that you know we will just continue to protest and uh, allow them to uh, bring in the TDYs, the scabs, to uh, continue to cover our shifts. Um, it, I, I've been standing here and there's been a little bit of traffic coming by, but there seems to be quite a bit of community support. How do you, how do you feel about uh, the support you've been getting? It's amazing. You know, uh, it's, it's important to get, you know, the workers' support in on this, uh, this walkout and in on this protest, but it's huge to hear that we have community support, that people, people understand our plight, that people completely agree with us in the fact that, you know, 965 starting and 1040 uh, cap is not a, a livable wage in the city of Missoula. What, what, uh, what would you uh, ask of the public if, if there was something, you know, that they could do, uh, you know, come down and support the picket for sure, right? Yes. If, uh, I mean, the best, the best thing that we can ask the public to do, you know, we can't, we can't ask them not to, not to use Delta or United you know uh or you know use use unify services as their airline of travel considering that delta and united are the two largest airlines inside the airport you know we can't we can't ask them of that but we can ask them to show their support stand with us and show corporate that this is not only exclusively a and uh, a contract problem you know uh are an employee problem but it's a community problem as well it shows, you know, other businesses that they need to start, you know, increasing wages. They need to start paying the, their employees a reasonable wage inside the city of Missoula. And several companies have already taken initiative. You know, we have like Panda Express is starting at $14 an hour. You know, uh, Arby's and Taco John's, I believe, are the same. You know, we have Target starting at about like $18 an hour. And then I believe Walmart is starting at $16 an hour. So they understand that they need to pay their employees a livable wage to be able to support themselves in the in the rising housing market that is Missoula right now. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, in in uh, any last words uh, of something we haven't covered? Uh, so a lot of this has to do with safety of employees as well. So we, you know, we work 12-hour shifts. We throw thousands of pounds tens of thousands of pounds of bags a day on busy days. You know, the average bag is estimated 30 pounds and the average heavy bag is estimated 50 pounds. So when you're moving a hundred plus bags on an aircraft, you know, and you have eight, nine aircraft that you're servicing a day, it becomes physically exhaustive. And you know, we get, my shift gets here at four in the morning, uh, Monday through, or Sunday through Wednesday. And so we are expected, you know, to get eight hours of sleep, we need to be in bed by seven, eight o'clock. And so if we are not in bed by then, you know, we're underslept, uh, we're overworked. Uh, between the mass amount of planes that we had seen in the past, you know, we, we weren't given adequate time to, you know, continually stay hydrated and fed. And it just creates larger problems. You know, it creates, it creates possibilities for aircraft damages. It creates possibilities for, you know, employee stress. Uh, 
you know, and right now uh, with the TDYs, from my understanding inside the airport, they have employees that aren't qualified for certain aircraft, certain airlines, working those airlines because every single airline has their own qualifications, their own standards, their own training regimen that needs to be completed before they're allowed to touch anything on that aircraft. Well, Jared, Bonnie, uh, thank you for doing this. So thank you very much. Awesome. Thank you. It, like, again, if we could get the more the more community support we can get in this, the, the more amazing it will be. The, I feel like the more people we have out here, the more people within the community and within employment that we can get out here, uh, the sooner corporate will have to realize this is actually a problem that needs to be addressed instead of trying to sweep it under the rug and ignore, you know, our our wishes. Very good. Uh, my name is Casey, and I'm doing this because I used to work for United and Delta Airlines through Unify. Um, I'm doing this because to get the next generation and the next group of people that are coming in to work, that, hey, we need higher pay. What we do is very dangerous, and yeah, it can be fun, but I love the job. I'm trying to get into the airline industry for like years and years, and finally I got the job, and unfortunately I had to like, leave because of medical issues and stuff, but that's good now. But like I said, I love the industry and I'm still planning on coming back to a different airline though. Um, it is a lot of work. It can be hard and stressful. I ain't not gonna lie about that. But at the end of the day, you feel it's kind of good because you get to be around stuff that you love doing. But it's like helping passengers uh, get to their gate, if they have trouble getting to the gate or being out on a ramp, helping out on a ramp, which I was a ramper and I love doing that. And, I still continue that if I can. So Casey, what actually brought you out to this picket line and to walk out of work? That's that's a big scary step. Um, what brought me out is a friend of mine told me about it, and I was interested. Like I said, I love the industry. I'm supporting them 100%, and we're like a team. Like if one's down, then we all are down. So we got to pick each other up. My name is Kentaro. I'm a passenger service agent for uh, Unify through well, both Delta and United. And I love working for the company. I feel like we deserve more of a higher pay, especially when we're doing such hazardous uh, work, such as um, just dealing with people with firearms or um, outside, walk right next to a multi-million dollar planes, moving the jet bridges, make sure we don't hit them, uh, make sure we don't get pulled into the engines or pushed back from it. Um, and even de-icing where we're like 30 feet above the ground and in the cold, we do it in any type of temperature, hot, cold, uh, like strong winds and any type of thing. And when we have a mechanical issue, for example, we will have to deplane people and that's a pretty long process just from our end up in the above wing and I think that we should be getting or shown more appreciation um, and all we're asking is just for a raise that's a livable wage. How, how much are you making now? Right now I finally got up to 10 an hour. I actually started at 9.55 when I was originally told that I'd be at 9.65 and when I was told that the cap is 10.40 I was shocked especially 
when I have other coworkers that have been working here for seven to 15 years, and they're only getting 1040, whereas when they had other contracts, they're getting at least like $12. So I feel like they also deserve a lot more, especially because of their seniority. And, and what, what prompted you, what was the final straw for you to come out here? Uh, just like with a lot of the others were saying, um, we're shown like we're unappreciated and not as important and we sort of actually look like college students uh, complaining about not getting enough money. Uh, we're not all college students, we have all different types of ages, everyone, almost everyone at least has a second job or third job like myself uh, to be able to survive in general. Yeah, that's uh, really, it should be fundamental that if you work full time, you should be able to pay all your bills and live off of that. Correct, yeah. And I feel like uh, the future generation people that are planning on coming over here do not deserve to deal with what we're going through right now and should start at a good wage. That way it also motivates them to perform even better. Yeah, absolutely. Any last words, Casey? Uh, yes, I do got to say uh, with the um, pay that we get, if we get in trouble, if we hit an aircraft or something, it comes out of our pockets and we get to pay that fine. That can be up to like $11,000 or more. And they don't realize that it takes us a long time to pay that off. If we're getting this amount of money, like $9.50 per hour. That's like years. You know, by, by the time we pay that off, we pretty much will be dead. Right. Or something else comes along. Yeah, yeah, that's ridiculous. And if you even keep your job, if you do it bad enough, I guess, right? Yeah. And like what Kentaro is saying, it's like being out on ramp. Yeah, it's scary at times, but you gotta do it. But you also gotta make make sure you're aware of what you're doing, because you do something, it screws you up, or you can screw up the aircraft, and that could also uh, hurt the passengers that are like traveling somewhere that they need to be like to a wedding or a funeral and comes down back to us. Yeah, in my experience with airline catering, uh, it, it was it seemed to be clear that uh, Delta uh, cared more for their airplanes than for their workers. Yes. <laughs> nodding, heads are nodding all around, yes. Um, so, any last words? Um, I would say that Again, like I was saying before, just show appreciation towards the people that work below because flight attendants and pilots are doing important jobs, but we are as well just to even pull their aircraft in and push it out, um, regardless of what kind of uh, passengers we deal with, whether they're just really nice or in a bad mood, or we have to keep a smile on their face, regardless situation and help them out so that they don't get in trouble or we don't get in trouble we're sending them overseas and them getting rejected and coming back well thank you both um that was good thank you. yep uh oh uh, one last thing um I'm, i've been trying to uh, see about public support and what the public can do come out and support your picket on between 11 and 2 right mm -hmm. correct yep. Good. Yeah, 11 to 2, that's our busiest time where we have three flights. we got Salt Lake, Minneapolis, and Denver flight through United. So yeah, that's our busiest time, so come out and support if you want to support us. All right, so if you feel 
this is an important issue like I do, you come out and support, stand on the picket line for even 15 minutes. That would be appreciated. Yes, it'll be very appreciated. <laughs> All right, thank you both. Thank you. That is inspiring, and people should show their solidarity. How can they do that, Mark? Well, the workers will remain uh, maintain their picket line every day from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m., in front of the under construction new terminal at the Missoula airport until the, the situation is resolved. And you can donate to a strike fund on gofundme.com under Unify, that's U-N-I-F-I, Living Wages Protest Fund. Um, just go to gofundme.com and type in and search for Unify with an I, uh, Living Wages Protest Fund, and you'll come up to their page so you can donate. And I have received a text from Jared Bonney that they have all been terminated. Uh, they have been speaking with a labor attorney so they can form a response to that. And they're going to need uh, money for a retainer for that attorney. So um, all the more reason to show your solidarity. Yeah, we'll go from something very grim and bleak to hilarity. Uh, with our last story, this time from the um, for the Running Comedy Act called the Montana Legislature. Yes, but perhaps it's a tragedy more so lately. Um, here's an interview with uh, Jeff Smith of the Anti-Climate Catastrophe Group 350 Montana speaking about Senate Bill 379. And after he's done speaking, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, today, we have uh, an interview with Jeff Smith of 350 Montana. He has graciously agreed to be interviewed about uh, legislation in uh, the Montana legislature current right now. And uh, welcome to Voice of the People, Jeff. Oh, thank you, Mark. Uh, it's good to I be here. Good to see you the good. other day. Yeah, yeah, it's good to see you too. And 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 actually, this is a return trip for you for to the radio show. So welcome back. Um, oh, so yeah, and so we were trying to do an interview outside, and it was too noisy. Um, but Jeff, uh, what uh, th there was a big rally in front of Northwestern Energy's uh, uh, corporate office in Missoula the other day. Um, why why were people gathered there? Well, um, we, we, we tried to have a pop-up demonstration um, in front of the Missoula headquarters and um, some folks, allies from Bozeman and Great Falls also did the same thing in front of the North, their local Northwestern Energy headquarters. Um, basically, it was to bring attention to this really bad bill that's up in the uh, House Energy Committee. It's already passed the Senate. So this is kind of a last ditch effort to uh, try to stop this bill. Um, it's really an egregious assault on um, uh, regulation, um, government, uh, state of Montana, um, Montana Public um, Service Commission um, usually uh, regulates um, energy purchases. Um, and looks out for the consumer, but um, this bill very specifically skirts um, that that regulation, um, and um, it's it's a it's a money grab too. Um, it, they say it's a way of keeping coal strip going, but there are no guarantees, and even if coal strip closes, 
Um, there's something like $1.3 billion um, that, that uh, uh, Northwestern Energy hopes to um, uh, uh, get back from their, their uh, uh, ratepayer base. Um, so, it's just, 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 it's very similar to the last um, time uh, the Republicans were in full power when Mark Roscoe was the governor. What was that, about 1995 or 96, where they deregulated Montana power on the, the very last days of the legislature? And we watched uh, Montana power go bankrupt and, uh, you know, we lost ownership of uh, all, all our dams and and our electricity dams. And, you know, um, I, I mean, I don't, we don't have to go into that, but this kind of power grab is very similar to what we saw under Mark Roscoe. Let's, um, for listeners who aren't familiar with some of this history, um, let's go back to the uh, I mean, Montana Power used to be the, you know, the utility for, for many, many years. It started by the Anaconda Company, by the way. Um, and, uh, uh, and they, when they went bankrupt because of, uh, of this bill of deregulation in, in the 1990s, um, Northwestern Energy bought uh, uh, some of their, or all of their assets, I forget which. Um, wasn't there another company that bought the lines and eventually Northwestern energy basically just replaced Montana power. Uh, well, they, and they, they started providing energy uh, from the market to replace what, um, what Montana power had, had sold off. And then gradually over the years, since, since the, around the early two thousands, Northwestern energy has um, gotten gotten the Public Service Commission to allow them to buy back the dams. So this is the second time that Montana's people have paid for these dams. And um, they also bought 30% of Coal Strip Unit 4 um, for uh, $167 million back in 2007. And the PSC did something very strange rather than um, make sure that the ratepayer base um, for, for Northwestern Energy paid back the $167 million, they allowed Northwestern Energy to put its consumers on, on this, this, this um, kind of addictive uh, payback scheme for $400 million between 2007 and 2042. I so see. So ratepayers are paying that off. Basically. They're paying it off. Yeah. And, and yep. you know, all of the other owners of, of um, Coal Strip 4 um, want to get out of the coal business because they're losing their shirts. Mm -hmm. And um, they're scheduling their, their, their withdrawal uh, for 2025 to 2027. And Northwestern Energy, because its ratepayers are on the hook to pay back that $400 million until 2042, doesn't want to do that. In fact, they want to double down and own more of it and addict more of the, more of the coal strip power um, to their, to their ratepayer base. And that's what this bill is all about. <clears throat> mm -hmm. it's, it's doubling down on coal strip, basically. 
It's doubling down on coal strip and their business model, as far as I can see, is to um, hook in the ratepayers for long term payback on these fossil fuel um, generators, um, even though there are no guarantees that um, they will continue to provide electricity. You know, it's 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 virtually certain that um, the coal strip units three and four, which are the only remaining ones, one and two closed last year. Mm-hmm. Um, it's is virtually certain that the other um, owners are are going to pull out, um, and mm-hmm. what what it's going to leave is if, if if this bill goes through, Montana consumers will pay for you know, all of the costs of, of uh, keeping that coal strip going. And the costs, according to some economists, are up to $1.3 billion. Hmm. So it potentially could be that if coal, I mean, coal strip three and four are going to close down, no matter what happens, eventually. I mean, <laughs> there is a limited life to power plants. Uh, and, uh, but it could close down sooner given the economics of, of coal-fired electricity. Um, uh, so Montana ratepayers, Northwestern Energy Montana ratepayers could be paying off for a plant that uh, is not producing any electricity. That's very likely. There's nothing in this bill um, that, that says that Northwestern Energy has to keep providing electricity from coal strip. But there's a lot in the bill about Northwestern Energy um, ratepayers having to pay um, for whatever happens over at Coal Strip. Um, you know, uh, there's a there's a, a an organization called the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis, IEEFA.org, um, that just did yesterday um, an analysis, and they think that. Um, Montana or Northwestern Energy's customers are going to be paying for a fictional com- a company investment of almost seven hundred million dollars. Um, basically, that 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 brings um, you know uh, something like thirty five hundred dollars per customer, you know, extra payment um, over the, the next 20 years if this bill goes through. It's really an egregious ab- abuse of power. It's a fascist way of, of um, get a company going into a, a legislature and, and um, strong arming um, its allies into passing a bill that guarantees the economic security of the company. And it won't be the stockholders that'll pay um, for coal strip. It's very clear. It'll be the rate payers who will pay. Um, you know, and it, it's just basically anti-democratic and very wrong. And it excludes, for the most part, the public service commission regulation. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the bill says that the public service commission has to give thumbs up or thumbs down on, on um, whatever happens to coal strip one time to make this this you know affirmation or or, or to decline um, the company and from that point on they have no input mm. 
Has, hasn't uh, the Public Service Commission uh, rejected uh, this a similar plan that this bill uh, uh, provides for? Yeah, um, it's very interesting because, you know, these are very conservative Republicans who are on the Public Service Commission, with one exception. Um, you know, they're all Republicans. All five of them are elected Republicans in the, on the Montana Public Service Commission, but all five of them have rejected this bill, have come out publicly. Two, three of them testified um, on Wednesday at the hearing in the House Energy and Telecommunications Com Committee. Um, so it's very interesting to see Republicans um, who are newly elected unanimously um, um, oppose this bill. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, and it also certainly is placed in the larger issue about uh, climate catastrophe and, and, and carbon emissions, um, which is pretty much one of the fundamental reasons why uh, coal, you know, coal is becoming uneconomical. And, uh, and that's kind of the big background, it seems like to me, of, of why this bill, right? That, uh, you know, kind of hanging on to the remnants of the uh, fossil fuel uh, electric, uh, you know, electricity production um, yeah. model. Yeah, that, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, the way the, the government affairs director at, at um, Northwestern Energy described it, you know, this bill provides a glide path. That was his word, words, the glide path for Northwestern energy. Mm. You know, and since when does, does uh, you know, state government provide a glide path for <laughs> a, a huge utility like Northwestern energy, right? Right, right. So that's one point. And then the other point, you know, as far as fossil fuels go, it seems like Northwestern Energy is the last withholding, um, you know, uh, refugee from the, the fossil, the 19th century, really. Um, you know, they know how to turn knobs up and down, right? Oh, we need more power. Let's turn up the dams. Let's turn up coal strip. But, you know, that's not what's happening in, in, in energy um, generation right now. Um, what's happening is that you have a very diverse um, portfolio uh, moving almost exclusively new infrastructure is either wind or solar or battery powered, you know, battery stored. Um, and every state in our, in, in our neighbor, every neighboring state of Montana um, has made the commitment um, to, to move to renewable energy. Um, so we're going to be left behind. And if this bill passes, like you said, um, we're going to continue with, you know, pouring CO2 into the atmosphere. You know, it means literally 180 million tons of CO2 from the coal strip plant. And the coal strip plant is the largest source of CO2 remaining in the West. Um, you look at, you know, places like Puget, Puget Sound Electric, and you look at um, the, 
the major utility in Oregon. Um, they just closed a, pl- uh, a coal plant on, on the Columbia River at Boardman in eastern, eastern um, Oregon near, near Pendleton. Um, they shut it down. And what's going to replace it? Um, wind farms and, and solar farms. Um, they're pretty confident that, that they can make up whatever energy they need from that that Boardman plant and do it reliably um, through um, renewable energy and storage um, technologies. Okay. Well, um, and if if people are so moved, um, there was a hearing um, before the House committee um, last Wednesday, and um, they have yet to take uh, executive action. This is Friday that we're recording this. And so uh, if people uh, feel strongly one way or another about this bill, uh, uh, what, what's the bill number and who should they uh, contact? Uh, the bill number is SB 379, Senate Bill 379. It's, the Senate bill has already passed the Senate. Um, the House Energy Committee, you know, took, took uh, testimony for four hours on, on uh uh, Wednesday, and they they are they will make a vote on this bill either Monday or Wednesday next week. Um, so there's a there's a mechanism where you can go to the Montana legislature's website and leave a message, and you can leave a message for the whole committee. Um, something like 1,200 Montanans have already done so, and overwhelmingly, um, people are opposing this bill. Um, but 1,200 Montanans isn't enough. We need everybody to do it um, right as soon as possible. And what and what was the committee's name again? The House Committee. Uh, it's the House Energy and Telecommunications Committee. Okay, so uh, if you f- want to weigh in and, and speak to your uh, legislators, uh, this committee. Uh, House uh, Energy and Telecommunications Committee. You can send a message to all of them on SB 379. Um, well, thank you very much for being with us, Jeff. Oh, thank you, Mark. Been a pleasure. It's good to see all you right. again. Yes, same here. Welcome back. We're, we're back to discuss what Jeff had said. Uh, Linda, do you want to go first? Yeah, I do. Um, I've worked a little bit when I lived in Missoula with Jeff and his colleagues at 350. um, And we did a lot of uh, making approaches to the PSC, which is supposed to be the uh, board which protects ratepayers in the matters of this uh, monopoly utility. And I was really interested to hear and rather surprised to hear that uh, Jeff say that all, I believe he said, all members of the PSC testified on Wednesday at the House committee and every one of them spoke against this bill. So it's Is really he- quite amazing because the yeah. The reputation that, at least with me and my friends, that the PSC has is of being sort of the bought dogs of Northwestern Energy. So uh, it really impresses me that in this situation, unanimously, the commissioners are in opposition to this bill, which will cut them out of the decision making after they 
say yes or no at one particular point. So that really, um, that interested me and I hadn't heard it from friends, although I do have friends who testified at the committee on Wednesday. Mm-hmm. It, just for accuracy's sake, he said that the major- that all of them opposed it, but only two or three testified, so. Oh, I'm so sorry. No, no problem, but no, essentially no, what you're saying is, is true. And it's, it's amazing because as he said, four of the five are like really hardcore conservatives and right. this is even a step too far for them. Right. Mm. Mm-hmm. Thanks for your correction, Mark. And I just think it's uh, rather an incredible situation that. Mm-hmm. Jim, I know you you have lots to weigh in here on. Yeah, as I, you know, I I have a tabula rosa here with these issues because I'm not familiar with the history of Montana, you know, power, um, f- familiar with how it's done back in Washington State. Uh, there is a public utility co-op for my county, and that's who I make checks out to. That's a very open and of candid organization that shares all kinds of information and invites you into decision-making and come to our building, which intentionally is built around an auditorium to encourage people to come and listen to business being made and proposals being presented. So this is, so the, 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 the lack of candor of what I see around here fascinates me. A, A couple of months ago, um, it occurred to me that I kept looking at these reservoirs up in the mountains in Japan and didn't make the association about what was going on. And this, this was a, a system called pumped hydro where, um, the Japanese electrical grid has chosen to, um, burn off, <laughs> You know, electricity that's being made at not during the evenings or at times when there's low demand, then use it to pump water up somewhere. And then when there is a spike in demand during the day, they're able to um, take what would otherwise be an overburdened system and then add in this power as needed. And I thought that was pretty cool. Then I never made the association with our own place here in Montana. And I got on a conversation with John Muse about this because as an old submarine guy, you know, that's just a that's just a reservoir underwater with with things being pumped and shuttled around. And he said, oh, yes, look up Gordon Butte. And I saw nothing in the papers around here. But um, if you but. The whole energy industry around the world is aware of it and quite excited about it. And it's going to be very, you know, in the Butte area. And they are going to do pumped hydro. They're um, Absaroka, which is a company in listed company in Bozeman and totally held by a limited liability corporation of very few people is, is doing this thing. And it's going to be a four megawatt operation, which is about the same as coal strip. Surprise, surprise. And um, things are happening, but it, it disturbs me that it doesn't get to be part of the public culture. People don't know who's doing it. They don't know where the money's coming from or what's going to be expected of them. 
So if so, this is the future, I'm concerned. Yeah. Well, let's let's go back a little bit for for listeners and describe. So you describe the pump hydro is yes. in, in specifically it can be used for wind or solar, right? Which exactly. Uh, Thank and, you. and so in a giant battery in, in effect, right? Yeah, it because, certainly is. And so the, they use electricity that's being generated but not needed in the grid is used to pump water uphill to a reservoir. Mm-hmm. And then, as you say, when uh, more demand is needed or when, when, you know, uh, w- when they need that energy, they can release the water through turbines and create recreate right. the electricity. Prob- I mean, do you know uh, it, to, to go into the grid? So is there, what's the, like the efficiency rate of that? Is that, is it pretty efficient kind of method? Oh yeah. Of well, storing? it's, it, it's, it's not that different or unlike any other, um, you know, any other hydro project. I, I, there is a very comprehensive article from the, IEEE Spectrum newsletter that I read that describes in detail how the generators work and says wonderful things about them, but I haven't read it in sufficient depth to get it. But anyway, the people that do these things are saying this bears attention because it's much better than what's been done in the past. Mm-hmm. Also through my reading of the IEEE you know, Spectrum newsletters is that in January, when there was an article about some people in Edinburgh, Scotland, who have been working with using not, not you know, fluids, but, you know, solid weights to do about the same thing. And they have, and they've been working on this for years. They've been working with people in South Africa and Europe that have disused mine shafts. Does anything come to mind right away? <laughs> and they said, oh, we have this system down so well that there is the capacity to use um, a a vertical shaft as deep as 1500 meters and I know there's at least one shaft in Butte that's 1630 meters wow so you know perfect and ironically this system is is four megawatt which is the same thing as Gordon Butte and the same thing as Colstrip now I it astounds me that this kind of thing hasn't been looked at. I ca- I had a nice talk with the sales engineering guys in Edinburgh. I had to listen very carefully because they don't talk like us at all. But they said, no, nobody from Montana or representing Montana or having anything to do with Montana has ever gotten in touch with it. Hmm. And I think their offices in uh, for the, you know, for whatever acronym it is, it's the PWE, um, NWE <laughs> Northwest all, Energy. Yeah, no, yeah, NWE, thank you. I'll go with that. It's also there in Bozeman or in in Butte and you know right down the street from them, you know, they could go take a walk at lunch and there'd be this <laughs> this giant mine shaft that they could get 4 milliwatts, you know, you know megawatts out of. Yeah. So when it, it, there's a dearth of imagination and a lack of curiosity about how to do their jobs better looks like it's run by accountants looking for how they can you know parse up the bean piles on on the table hmm. yeah uh, there's a um, couple things i want to add there 
there was announced a, a, a huge project, I think near Boardman, Oregon, if I'm not mistaken, of a pumped hydro project that's going to be, it's like a three-year construction project mm-hmm. that's going to employ hundreds of workers. It's yes. union work. It's, it's going to be 100% union. And um, it looks, it, it's the Gordon Butte project, right? It's, and it's, Jay it looks, Inslee signed off on it. It's a big r- deal in the region. Yeah. Yeah. So it must be on the Washington side, not the Oregon side of the Columbia. Oh. Um, and uh, the other thing is that, uh, you know, th- th- there needs to be a lot, like you say, there needs to be a lot more curiosity about this. I asked Jeff about in, you know, off, microphone asking about the Gordon Butte uh, pumped hydro project. And he said that uh, um, he didn't know why it hadn't been, you know, going forward, but he, he did hear Bob Rowe give a one answer comment about someone really uh, uh, another person uh, very uh, candidly and animatedly uh, advocating for this Gordon um, hydro uh, Gordon Butte Hydro Project, and he gave a one-word answer, and he said expensive. <laughs> oh, um, which is which is not a you know uh, a real good answer, I, I, I would say, especially since um, you know we're going to have to you know we have to get off of fossil fuels, and mm-hmm. storage of that energy is a is is a yeah. major major issue. Well, well when, you know- I mean, when the planet is in danger, what's expensive? Right, exactly. Oh, compared no. compared to what? Exactly. Yeah, compared you know, to what? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 this this isn't you know uh, popular science madness and speculation. Um, I know with certainty what's going on in Japan, and and other uh, their nuclear industry, which was fifty four working reactors, is now down to five. I think. And they wanted to add another two in um, at a plant in Niigata Prefecture, not far from Fukushima. And um, they were all set to go. And then two days ago, the regulatory agency said, no, well, we've been monitoring you. You had this infraction and this infraction. So um, come back to us next year and we'll think about it. That I've well, been showing people charts of, you know, energy production in Japan, and they've essentially thrown nuclear down the ash heap, and the, there's, they have been making do without using it at all. Wow. Mm. I think, yeah, I think there might be seven operating plants. I think it was so five, the, but that's, so, that's the upper limit. So they're looking to get rid of their nuclear yeah, plants eventually. It's, it's a, they're going away right now. They're brazenly going with natural gas and coal because it's all they have because they because they threw away the nukes and that is going to be aggressively addressed in the next decade and this comes from my son who's who's a city administrator for uh, for date city in fukushima and you know and is very familiar with these issues because he's part of the process mm-hmm. um uh, I was going to, this is on somewhat different part of the subject, but um, Jeff mentioned, I think Jeff, maybe it was you, um, Mark, mentioned that the other owners of Coal Strip have decided to get out of the business, right? 
And I just wanted to point out, probably everybody knows this, but a reason that at least the Washington state owners are getting out is that Washington state citizens demanded it. Yes. They took a vote and they said, Mm -hmm. we want you to divest from this by a certain time. And, um, Montanans have never been able to pull themselves together to do that, although we do a lot of things by uh, by citizen initiative. But this was not just something that the the uh, power companies of Puget Power or whoever you are out there um, uh, decided to do because they're enlightened, but because the citizens of Washington said, "Get out of said get out of this." Well, great. Well, well, thank you uh, both. And, and maybe uh, Montana can find a way of exercising solidarity with the citizens of Washington oh, yeah. State uh, and do some now, common sense stuff. Sure we right? are, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> there you Yes, there, there you are, Jim. Um, but well, thank you for a great show. Sound Sound Guy, Jim Galan and friend of the show, Linda Jillison. Thank you. Yeah. It's been great it was fun. a great time. Thank you. America first, the cradle of the best and of the worst. It's here they got the range and the machinery for change, and it's here they got the spiritual thirst. It's here the family is broken, and it's here the lonely say that the heart has got to open in a fundamental way. Democracy is coming.
Come on, the sea is coming to thy 